1: Hello, producer Jonah Primo here and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. So this is part two of our conversation with Michelle Borba on what parents can do to mold our children. And this question is part of our broader feature on nature versus nurture in regards to how kids turn out. Now, we were lucky enough to speak to geneticist Robert Plowman a couple of weeks ago, and his ideas come up quite a bit in this conversation. So, to get the full picture and all the alternate views, I'm going to ask a lot of you. I'm going to encourage you to listen to the last three episodes as homework before listening to this one. Emil gets into the nitty-gritty with both Robert and Michelle on their views, and it's quite enlightening. And of course, one more thing, if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review, tell your friends. Do whatever you can to spread the word. Over to Lloyd and Michelle.
2: Let me get now to one of the cores of this podcast, which is our attempt to show a different way of arguing, of disagreeing. And the principle of charity is the attempt to try and present the alternative view, as as we do in science, the alternative hypothesis rather than the hypothesis. And let me frame up this question to you, Michelle. What are the three strongest points of the other view? That is that there's not much we can do to mold our kids.
0: Well, I guess a little bit would be the DNA. And that would be uh, if we don't accept the DNA of the child and move in that direction, that will counter it. Uh, A second thing could be is that if we aren't intentional enough or have a plan of what we're doing, Parenting can go by too quickly and there's no rewind button on it. So it's like all of a sudden we realize, oh my gosh, all of those moments that I could have done uh, aren't there. The third thing I think is it's too one-sided in that we want desperately to our kids to succeed, but I'm seeing so many children are telling me, but it's all about uh, getting the grade or getting them to the right school or getting the right test score. And if we're too one-sided, we overlook and I think rob the child of the other part that he could be. Mm-hmm. And, and both sides are critical because okay. I do think at this point, it's not either or, it's both that are going to maximize the child's mm-hmm. chances of success mm-hmm. in the real world. Don't just say, okay, now I'm just going to teach these character strengths without the other. Don't stop helping them succeed in that classroom. But we now know is these character strengths are going to help maximize who he is, to take him up to that level so he's more likely to thrive and not just survive or struggle.
3: Right. How did Michelle do? Well, I think Michelle's really acknowledged the limitations of moulding a child. They're not blank slates. They're not lumps of clay. They come with character traits as well, character strengths. Um, So I think very well. You've done very well, Michelle. (laughs) I'm not Robert Plowman here.
0: Gosh, (laughs) Emil. Thanks.
3: You, you passed the
2: principle of charity barometer according to uh, you know uh, Robert's new persona.
3: I think Robert's suspicion mm. is that in the end of the day those character traits can move the needle one way or the other a bit, but it doesn't really his proposition is that it doesn't change who you are. And I think mm. it sounds like in a sense you agree with that. you sort of are who you are, but how you exercise, and how you act in the world are things that can be yeah. changed and and, and taught. Yeah.
0: You know, Emil, there's another point on that that's really interesting, the who. What I'm seeing as another danger to counter this is too often we're raising kids on what we want them to become as opposed to who they are. Yeah. And that really counters the child. No, I like that. When we're talking about self-confidence, a resilient kid knows who they are and can accept their weaknesses but also can acknowledge their strengths. And those strengths are going to get them through that flow state or a feeling of better, more success uh, myself, but also being able to handle the weaknesses.
2: I want to get on to the issue of the culture wars. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, I think in a lot of Western countries, we have the culture wars between the right and the left, these high levels of polarization. What are you seeing in the schools? How are the culture wars reflected? in the schools so if i walked into a school today and let's stay with with america for the moment united states (laughs) how would i see culture wars reflected or would i not see them reflected
0: it depends upon the state lloyd and the fascinating thing is i have been traveling almost daily to a different state i just came from one state when before i was allowed to speak on mental illness uh, with one in three American kids suffering from some kind of a mental health, stress, anxiety, depression. I simply asked, are there any things I should not say? They said, yes, please don't use the word diversity, inclusion, equity, mental illness, or social emotional learning. I said, what would you like me to say? (laughs) So you can talk about belonging. That was, there you go.
2: But why, tell us why.
0: The context and the history is you're pushing Your agenda onto us. We want to raise our kids based on who we want them to become. I'm seeing another trend that I think is frankly scary, and that's banning books. We Mm -hmm. did that years back, but now all of a sudden, some of the hallmark of hallmark books are being. In fact, can uh, you give our
2: our listeners an example?
0: Yeah, Lord of the Flies, uh, Grapes of Wrath, Where the Wild Things Are.
2: Because why are they banned? Why are I they think banned?
0: one part of it that is very concerning, I can see the love of the parent, but one part of it is I don't want my child to be right now facing any kind of issues that could be damaging or smothering. For instance, there's one state that wants to remove the diary of a young girl because it's too much of a downer. I'm going, if you remove that, you're removing history. You're removing deeper thinking. You're We're raising a group of kids, to keep this in mind, who are going to be able to get their answers by asking Surrey or Googling, cutting, and pasting. Mm-hmm. What we want them to be able to do is think for themselves.
2: Michelle, what you're telling me is that with respect to disagreement, when we start to ban books, when we start to say you cannot talk about X, to your point earlier... We're really not improving the experience of how to disagree or how to manage any diversity of thought.
0: Exactly. Let me give you the best thing I've ever seen anywhere in my life, and it was Tibet. I happened to walk into a monk's courtyard that was built in 1491, and there are teens all around inside, they're uh, practicing to be a monk. Now, the teachers were obviously sitting on the outside, but they weren't there. But what they were doing was actually practicing in twos. One kid was the challenger and one kid was the defender. Each day they're giving some kind of an ethical dilemma, like an Aristotle or a Socratic kind of a dialogue or a a dilemma that they have to. One kid has to prove I'm right. And you're wrong. And then they reverse roles. It was absolutely mind-boggling. I sat there with AP Wire reporters going, oh, this is absolutely textbook perfect. Because it was getting kids to really think, what are my views? Mm. Do I agree? How Mm. do I defend myself? How do I be assertive? And now let me listen to the other person. This good old debate is what we need. You don't have to agree. But hear where the other person is coming from. That's my concern.
2: Fantastic. Michelle, let me let me talk a little bit about your approach to research and science. And and one of the things I'm sure our listeners would experience just from listening to you, we, we have to get onto YouTube or some other mechanism uh, email at some point so, so people can actually see our guests. And what people can no doubt hear is your passion. What I can see is you bursting through the screen with your passion and energy. And I wanted to ask you, as a researcher, do you ever believe that your passion gets in the way of your research? Does it limit, does it limit your, your thoroughness, your focus on being empirical?
0: Uh, no, because it energizes me. If I didn't have the passion, I think I would be in the burnout stage of being exhausted. But see, my background started out with special needs kids. Then I worked with foster care parents. Then I worked with school shooters. Then I worked with gifted and talented kids. And what's always had me going is, why is that kid thriving and that kid struggling? Despite- maybe similar, looks like similar backgrounds, mm, looks mm. like they've got similar advantages, what's going on. And I also have learned, because uh, I've been in the media a lot, that some of my original students from way back when, are now calling me 20, 30 years later, and I'm blown away because I realized, wow, don't ever doubt a child. The shyest child that I had in the classroom that never opened his mouth is one of the top DAs in Florida right now. Mm. The kid who was a nonstop talker that I went, oh my gosh, how do I, I said, what is he doing? He's a DJ, extraordinarily successful. What happened is each of these kids also who did, finally thrive and make it despite extreme learning disabilities, had a parent who said, but here's their strength and I'm going to keep pushing them. And that helped me and my passion. Can I come to,
2: you know, personality, trays. if you had to put yourself on agreeable as 10 and disagreeable as zero, where, where would you put yourself?
0: Well, I try to hear where the person's coming from. And I think I've done that because of travel. I, I try to break through a bias and a, and a prejudice, and it's been fascinating, particularly in the Middle East. Mm. Example, I was working with women with burkas, and I couldn't see, I could only see their eyes. And it was mm. like, how am I going to see the facial expression that Emil was talking about? And I decided, okay, Michelle, step outside the box, be courageous, figure out what it is and get into a conversation. And it turned out to be the most mind-bogglingly powerful conversations that flipped every image that I had just fun, wonderful. But um, I remember doing a a photograph with one of them. And one of the women who was going to take a photograph said, okay, everybody smile. And I go, she can't smile. And the woman next to me just immediately started to laugh and said, I'm smiling on the inside. So agreeable, maybe about a a seven and a half.
2: So so on that, do you think you should become more disagreeable in order to further debate and further sort of intellectual rigor?
0: What I'm now trying to do is really hear the other side. Mm. Uh, For instance, um, just coming back from the states that I was talking about, I wanna hear where they're coming from and I try to, Michelle, stay blank and hear where there are and it may alter your views and that becomes really helpful to me.
2: You, You come across as a great listener, somebody who's going to be highly charitable what are the triggers for you when you become the least charitable? What do I see from Michelle when she's just a little nasty, not so friendly? Instinctively rejects. What 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 happens? What's the context for that Michelle to show herself?
0: Somebody treating a child unjustly. I I really have a, I will tell you a very low tolerance of it because. Mm. Uh, it's just totally unfair. My my whole background was starting with kids who were bullied and shamed and it just, I can't tolerate it. But I'll, I'll let you know, maybe I should hold up a card. Watch out.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, it's because I think that is one of the common traits across culture, isn't it? Yes. That that one of the common traits is that all of us, no matter what culture we've come from, do not like to see people treated in a very unfair or unjust way. Yes. Does your... Acclaim that you've got in the last 15, 20 years, do you think that is affecting the way you present your point of view? Are you curtailing yourself more because you're famous? Do you have to watch yourself? You is there more so to nice lose to now? now? Is there more to lose because you, you, you know, you, you're on all these television shows and getting all this acclaim?
0: Oh, you are. I, might, I need to hire you as my new PR firm. Listen, Lloyd, I think what happens is I'm getting feistier. Because I am really is a little
2: fusty, that's,
0: true. yeah, I'm getting really concerned about uh, what's happening with certain children. And how they're being treated, and I, I just, I think we need to stand up to the plate. I think we can't be complacent anymore. Complacency mm. is is starting to concern me. That you know, this, all of this stuff is teachable. It's doable. We need to reimagine how our kids turn out, and we've got one chance to do it right. There's no, there's no do overs here. Mm. So that's where my feistiness is coming in.
2: Yeah, and I, and I, and it seems to me that your feistiness comes from a history of being focused on helping, on yeah. learning disabilities and the, the practicality of it rather than starting off as an academic. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm wondering whether that activism you know, that you had as, as a social worker has really shaped uh, your, your focus on doing things rather than just thinking through things.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Listen, everything I've learned, the best things I've learned has not been in a science. It's been from a kid. The fascinating thing is, when I ask kids, it almost always matches the science. <laughs> I sit there and go, oh "My gosh, we got to save ourselves hours and hours on this." But I, I think that's the first thing is they're they're intuitive if we're non judgmental. If we sit there and say, um, "Open up and tell me what's really what do you think a parents or teachers could do? What could we say uh, that would help your generation?" Mm. And they they never let you down. If we go back
2: to the conversation you had with Emil on thriving. What do you think may change your perspective on why kids thrive? I mean, what 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 is the data you may need to see to go? You know, what I got some of this wrong.
0: Uh, I think there's some fascinating new data that's coming out. China, England, Ireland, United States are now tracking children who have gone through two years of a pandemic. I I am fascinated to see. Are they seeing the same research that uh, that I gathered and the evidence of what creates a resilient child? Or are there other things because this is kind of a new generation that's a, a different breed and a, and a different cohort that um, scientists are looking at? That may be the pivotal mm. moment. But I I find it one of the most fascinating things that I wasn't prepared for is just having a conversation with your child about your own family. I'm talking about your grandparents or your great grandparents. If they endured hardship of World War II or they endured a bubonic plague or whatever it was – Your child is very often more likely to see themselves as a more resilient human being because we're a resilient family. So what I'm loving is the science that's coming out, Lloyd, that simple things, ordinary things that can make extraordinary differences. We are exhausted as parents. I do not want parents to think this is one more tutor and this is one more program. Instead, I want you to think about what are you already doing that supports it? And what are the pitfalls? What are the few little things that your child really needs right now that could help him get over the next bump to be more of a bounce back child? There's simple things, but the other thing we've got to do uh, that we fail sometimes is that we say it once or twice, but we don't realize that habits can be very simple. But if you keep repeating them over and over and over and over the same little practices, the real goal is the outcome of that procedure. Mm-hmm. And that is your child will be able to do mm-hmm. the habit without you. Without you, out in the playground, out in the drinking water, out of yep. the play group, going off to college. And I think that's gonna be our new, our new parenting plan. Yep. Can our kids live and survive without us?
2: If we change the title of your book <laughs> and we didn't call it Drivers and we called it Super Successful People, Super elite sports stars, for example, Uh, thinking of somebody like uh, you know Emma uh, Raducanu, who I think won the USA Open, and said you know somebody said to her, "So why did you win?" She said, "That's because my parents were very hard to please." Do you think that for those super elite athletes, your book doesn't apply? I mean, do you need the alternative that Emil was referring to? Do you need you know a little bit of insecurity more anxiety just consistently dissatisfaction with yourself to compete at the most elite level meaning the thriving works for the large majority of the population but it just doesn't work for those top point 001 percenters i'm not saying they're happy
0: well, first of all, I would not want the book title changed to that because that would mean that every parent would be wanting to raise the super yeah. elite child. This,
2: that is the, t- be- this is the Tiger ah. mom that you spoke about earlier.
0: Yeah. But second of all, the fascinating thing was when I was writing Thrivers, I was also interviewing super elite. Uh, I worked with Olympic athletes, M- Michael Phelps, some of the most amazing. Yeah most decorated Olympian on record and found that some of the things, despite ADHD as a kid, we can do with any of our children. The coach teaching him goal setting, set one step more, Michael. No, the goal is not the gold medal. The goal is do one step more. Nope. Yesterday, you got this many seconds. Today, you're going this seconds. The other thing that I think was fascinating that you also mentioned is preparing our kids for stress. You're mentioning that If we always coddle our kids and don't give them little dosages of stress along the way, they're not going to be prepared for it. The best thing I have ever heard back to a kid, this was in Taipei. This kid was one of those super elite kids. He also had a sense of humor that was unbelievable. Test scores were in the ozone layer. And he was fun. And he was walking me around this incredible, prestigious school. And I finally turned to him. He was a junior in high school and said, "Okay, I got a question. Why aren't you stressed out like all your friends? You're doing pretty darn well. And laid back. And I'll never forget his answer. He goes, oh, it was how I was raised. I said, okay, please do tell. How were you raised? He said, my parents used the baby step model. I said, what's that? He goes, my parents knew that my life would be, and all of our lives would be more stressful. So what they did is slowly give me little dosages of stress, knowing that I could handle it, and I could handle it. And what happened along the way is I just got better and better and better. Their parents were developing agency in the child. And as a result, that's what helped him succeed.
2: And on that note, Michelle, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I feel energized just from your energy.
3: Um, and, Emil, any last words from you? Well, I yeah, I feel so energized uh, mixed with slight regret that I've missed the – I've done the wrong thing for the last 15 years uh, with my, my three kids. Yeah, I see. Um, Jonah's is about to disown me. But but at least I haven't missed the entire childhood like you have, Lloyd. But um, it really is – It's empowering. And what I love about, in a sense, what is common ground between yourself, Michelle and and Robert Plowman is looking at the child themselves. You've got to start with the child, not with your own fantasies, with your own, uh, you know, um, goals. And if you start with a child, you know what you're dealing with. You know, there are things you can do. Um, I think Robert wouldn't disagree with that, but. It feels like that's the revolution for me, is really putting oneself aside and going, who have I got in front of me? Mm -hmm. Robert's other nice point, which I I imagine you'd agree with, is putting aside wanting the kid to thrive, just actually enjoying our time with our children and being in relationship with them. It doesn't need to all be transactional. It doesn't need to be for a purpose outside of getting to know that little person and actually having a good time and developing a strong bond of, of love.
0: Oh, Emil, I love that. That's exactly what it is. If we could all just enjoy each other, take the child for who they are and uh, realize who they are, that's, I think, how we'll raise up a strong generation of
3: kids. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks so much.
2: Take
1: care. And if you like what you heard today, please leave a review. It really helps get our podcasts higher on the podcast algorithms get us discovered, and spread the word. See you next week.